0: The Minding Your Mind podcast, raising awareness and breaking the stigma around mental health. Hello and welcome to the Minding Your Mind podcast. My name is Jordan Burnham, and I will be your host for today's episode. For this episode, I wanted to come on and share my thoughts on George Floyd, Black Lives Matter, and what allyship means to me. This is inspired by both me wanting to reflect on how I've been feeling, but also from a question I kept hearing after the video of George Floyd went viral. How could something like this happen in America in 2020? My focus for today is looking into some of the stories that have been highlighted during the Black Lives Matter movement. It's important to not only learn about these stories, But my goal is for you, the audience, to look at specific parts of policing that we should question in order to make sense of devastating tragedies like the death of George Floyd. I do want to give a warning about the violence talked about in this podcast. The sad truth is you can't talk about the history of police brutality without talking about violence, and in these cases, death. I've had years to process a lot of what I'll be discussing in this episode, so it's completely understandable if hearing these stories is overwhelming for you to try and process in the span of 20 minutes. If you're feeling that way, please take care of your mental health by pausing or taking a break at any point. But I do encourage you to listen. I found out about the video of George Floyd... Sadly, in the way I've become accustomed to, I notice that a name is trending on Twitter. Then I usually see a message pop up in the group text between me and my friends, asking something along the lines of, have you seen the video? Did you hear about this story? Have you read this transcript or police report? And we ask ourselves the same question over and over again. Why is this not the biggest story on the news right now? But something felt different this time. I saw the video being shared by people who usually don't comment on police brutality. I saw the picture being posted on Facebook and people giving their honest opinion. And a part of me did step back and wonder, why now? Why is everyone all of a sudden ready for the conversation of the oppression of black people in America and supporting Black Lives Matter? Because as a black man, I can't just forget how alienated I felt saying Black Lives Matter during Ferguson after 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot and killed. I can't forget people on social media posting fake pictures of 17-year-old Trayvon Martin to try and paint him as a thug in order to justify George Zimmerman murdering him for being black and wearing a hoodie. When 12-year-old Tamir Rice was shot and killed holding a toy gun, Honestly, I thought that would be the moment that everyone would rally together. But instead, I saw people saying he shouldn't have been playing with a toy gun and posted pictures of toy guns and real guns side by side to justify a police officer shooting him within two seconds of arriving at the park. But with George Floyd, it was nearly impossible to avoid seeing the picture of that police officer pressing his knee on the back of George Floyd's neck. That video is painful to watch, and it's painful to listen to. I can't breathe. He said that 16 times. Please, mama, I'm about to die. Don't kill me. Please, sir. And when I watched that video for the first time, there's one image that represents a large part of why Black Lives Matter exist. Why we've seen the heightened awareness of police brutality and the many protests that have followed since. It's the look on Derek Chauvin's face. Derek Chauvin had a look of, I don't care. Not just that he didn't care about George Floyd's life, he didn't care if multiple people were filming him. Because in his mind, it didn't matter. He already had 17 complaints against him, involved in three police shootings one of them being fatal, and he still had the mindset of, I'll put my hands in my pockets, go ahead and film. It doesn't matter. Nothing is going to change. It's just another complaint on my record. As infuriating as that look was for many, I do want to speak to those who have been awakened by that video and wanting to learn more about how to be an ally specifically to Black Lives Matter. But in order to do that, I want to take a step back and bring up the larger picture of George Floyd's death and speak on a few other stories that illustrate an issue that has plagued the black community over and over again. So on that day, May 25th, 2020, a convenience store employee called 911 about a black man who appeared drunk and allegedly used a counterfeit $20 bill. That call came in at 8.01 p.m. Within nine minutes, there were three police cars, six officers, and George Floyd was on the ground. The only people who got Derek Chauvin to take his knee off of George Floyd were the EMTs. So take a second to think about this. The EMTs had to be called within 20 minutes of an arrest of someone who possibly used a counterfeit $20 bill that 911 call came in at 8:01 p.m. and George Floyd was pronounced dead at 9:25 p.m. George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin, but systemic racism is at the root of what allows the Derek Chauvins of the world to keep their hands in their pockets as black people are being murdered. One last observation and question for you. What other job in this country can someone have 17 complaints against them? And still have a job. On October twelfth, two thousand nineteen, a neighbor of twenty-eight-year-old Atatiana Jefferson called a non-emergency number after noticing her front door was open. The officer arrived shortly before two thirty a.m. and started searching outside of her house for one minute, without announcing who he was. When Atatiana Jefferson came to the window to see what was going on, all she saw was a flashlight and within a second she was shot and killed in her own home. She was babysitting her eight-year-old nephew who witnessed this murder. The only thing that the police officer was asked to do was check and see if Tatiana Jefferson was safe and instead she was killed in her own home. How does this happen? Her neighbor said, quote, I called the police department for a welfare check. No domestic violence, no arguing, nothing that they should be concerned with as far as them with guns drawn to my neighbor's house. Just to clarify, when a call is relayed as a welfare check, officers would normally just knock on the house's doors or call inside. But it was relayed as an open structure, a vague classification that could mean anything from an abandoned house to an unlocked door, or a burglary in progress. To me, these are all three vastly different scenarios. At what point do we question how information is being relayed and admit how terrifying it is that one small miscommunication can have deadly consequences? a, A small miscommunication could possibly lead to ending up at the wrong house or the wrong street, but a miscommunication shouldn't lead to a Tatiana Jefferson being shot because her front door was open. Her neighbor also said, quote, I feel guilty because if I had not called the police to do a welfare check, my neighbor would still be alive, End quote. To me, I don't think we should live in a world where someone is hesitant to pick up the phone to check on their neighbor because they fear for their neighbor's safety once the police actually arrive. This story is one I'll never forget for many reasons, but one of those reasons is because it happened on my birthday. July 6, 2016, 32-year-old Philando Castile was pulled over because he had a brake light out. When asked, he informed the officer that he had a legal firearm. Philando said, sir, I have a firearm on me. The officer told him not to reach for it, and he replied, I'm not. The officer then backed up and fired his gun seven times, killing Philando Castile with his girlfriend in the front seat and four-year-old daughter in the back. I remember I was traveling to a family reunion when this happened, and it was a long car ride so my family stayed overnight at a hotel. I was sitting in the lobby watching the news coverage next to another man who was white, and he made a comment. He said he couldn't believe Philando Castile's girlfriend, Diamond Reynolds, could live stream what was happening. And I didn't have the emotional strength in me to explain, but I wanted to say she had to. She felt she had to because she wanted people to believe her. She didn't know when the police footage would be released, and she didn't want a dash cam video to decide the narrative of who Philando Castile was and what happened in that car. This is a mentality that I'll be speaking on a little later in this episode because it's a mentality and a theme that bridges the fight for racial justice both in our past and our present. This next story speaks to another systemic barrier for people of color. On August 14, 2014, police officers were sent to 50-year-old Michelle Casaux's apartment. An office manager at Southwest Network which provides behavioral mental health services in Arizona, was concerned with how Michelle Casso sounded during a phone call. That office manager called the police to issue a mental health pickup, where police are ordered to transfer someone to a mental health facility. To add context, Michelle Casso had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and had a history of drug abuse. When the police arrived, Michelle closed the door on them. The police officers then forced their way inside of her home, where they found her holding a hammer above her head. As she walked towards them, an officer feared for his safety, so he shot and killed her. The use of lethal force was approved by the police chief. The county attorney declined to file criminal charges against the officer. He said the use of force was justified and noted that Michelle Casseau had drugs and trace amounts of alcohol in her system at the time of the incident this was viewed as and i quote a justifiable homicide so instead of giving michelle casseau the help and resources she needed deserved during a time where the only thing asked of the police was to take her to a mental health facility she was instead shot and killed know in the eyes of that county attorney her mental health issues justified an officer shooting her. And instead of Michelle Casseau arriving safely at a mental health facility, she was instead rushed to a hospital where she was later pronounced dead. If you have the opportunity, I would encourage you to read the article, White People Go to Rehab, Black People Go to Jail. It's on the Work It Health website. In that article, interventionist Tim Harrington says, Quote, If you're white, you're sick. If you're black, you're a criminal. End quote. I guess my question for this one is, are we sure police officers should be the ultimate deciders in who receives help and who doesn't? I think this next story challenges the notion that more police officers makes things safer. On April 30, 2014, the Milwaukee Police Department received several calls from Starbucks employees about a man sleeping in the park. This man was 31 year old Dontre Hamilton and he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. A pair of officers checked on him twice that afternoon, but the interactions ended without any incident. The officers determined that he was, quote, not doing anything wrong and informed the Starbucks employees that he could remain in the park as he was not disturbing anyone. A third officer made his way to the park over an hour later. The officer informed dispatch that he was responding to a call about, quote, trouble with a suspect. Now, I want to point out this small but incredibly important detail. This third police officer is now calling Dontre Hamilton, who was just sleeping in a park, a suspect causing trouble even though it's been confirmed by two of his fellow officers that that's not the case. This isn't a miscommunication, it's negligence. But Dontre Hamilton complied with the officer's order for him to stand up. The officer began frisking him, despite having no reason to suspect he was armed or had committed a crime. This led to an altercation during the pat-down, and the officer began using his police baton to strike Dontre Hamilton who then got a hold of the baton, and the officer reacted by shooting Dontre Hamilton 14 times, killing him. Out of all the officers who approached Dontre Hamilton for sleeping in a park, the third officer was the most aggressive. And in the case of George Floyd, the third police officer onto the scene, which included Derek Chauvin, ended up being the most aggressive and violent. At some point, we have to step back and ask, How many officers actually need to be involved in a call like this? So if I said to you, Starbucks employees are calling about a homeless man who's sleeping in a park but isn't bothering anyone. How many police officers do you feel we should send? How many are necessary? Is it three? Zero is an acceptable answer. And I'll pose the question like this. If one less Police officer approached Dontre Hamilton, would he still be alive today? And to bring it back around, if one less cop car pulls up to George Floyd, is he still alive today? This story is difficult to read. It's painful to process. It's infuriating. It's saddening, but it's a story that needs to be heard. On March 13th, 2020, Louisville Metro police officers were executing a no-knock warrant because they were looking for two drug dealer suspects that lived 10 miles away. But the cops decided that 26-year-old Brianna Taylor's apartment needed to be broken into because one of those suspects could possibly be using her mailing address. At approximately 12.40 a.m., three police officers knocked and then used a battering ram to force open the door without announcing who they were. The officers started shooting at Brianna's boyfriend, who had no connection whatsoever to their investigation, and Brianna Taylor herself, who was shot eight times and killed while she was sleeping. One officer was fired. The other two are still working for that very same police department. Brianna Taylor's name needs to be said over and over again. Because the day that our country decided police officers can force themselves into a home, Unannounced, shoot and kill an innocent person as they're sleeping, and then go back to work the next morning? Is the day our country chose to protect a system built for black lives to be lost with no accountability held to those responsible for taking those lives? I know it's devastating to hear the stories of Breonna Taylor, Dontra Hamilton, Michelle Cusseau, Philando Castile, Atatiana Jefferson, and George Floyd. But these stories deserve to be heard, and these names deserve justice. And here are some of the other names that deserve your attention Tony McDade, 38, Brela Stone, 17, Kayla Moore, 41, Rhea Milton, 25, Dominique Fells, 27, Monica Diamond, 34, Rakia Boyd, 22, Brooklyn Lindsay, 32 Mercy Mack 22 Candace Towns 30 Nina Pop 28 Denali Stuckey 29 Jane Thompson 33 The names I just mentioned are not only black lives but more specifically black trans lives and I'd encourage everyone listening to take the time to understand the deadly effect that transphobia is having on Black lives as well, especially Black trans women who have an estimated life expectancy of 35. I also want to say the names Elijah McLean, 23, Ahmad Arbery, 25, Megan Hockaday, 26, Laquan McDonald, 17, Stephon Clark, 22, Sandra Bland, 28. Alfred Alongo 38. Anthony Hill, 26. John Crawford III, 22. Natasha McKenna, 37. Freddie Gray, 25. Eric Gardner, 48. Botham John, 26. Charlena Lyles, 30. Quintinio LaGuirre, 19. One of my best friends' little cousin, Antoine Rose Jr. 17. Sean Reed, 21. India Crager, 28. George Mann, 35. Jonathan Farrell, 24. Ubet Smith, 47. Walter Scott, 50. Alton Sterling, Thirty-seven. Shelly Frey, twenty-seven. Terrence Franklin, twenty-two. Renisha McBride, nineteen. Jordan Baker, twenty-six. Alicia Thomas, thirty-five. And the name I think of every time I speak on this subject, Emmett Till. In 1955, fourteen-year-old Emmett Till was murdered by two men. After Carolyn Bryant, a white woman, alleged that he whistled at her and grabbed her by the waist while they were in a store. Her husband, Roy Bryant, and his half brother abducted Emmett Till and brutally murdered him. Later in her life, Carolyn Bryant recanted her story and admitted that Emmett Till never touched, threatened, or harassed her. Now, there's one woman that bridges that moment in 1955 to what we're going through now. And that's Emmett Till's mother. She decided she wanted her son's funeral to be an open casket funeral. Now, it's important to note, Emmett Till's face and body was unrecognizable due to the severity of how he was murdered. But the other thing is that his mother knew there would be thousands of people coming to the funeral, including civil rights leaders and most importantly, photographers from magazines and newspapers. When she told the funeral director that she wanted an open casket, he offered to make Emmett Till look more presentable. But she responded, quote, no. Let the world see what I've seen. And the remarkable thing is Mamie Till Mobley, Emmett Till's mother, made a decision and held a mentality that still continues 65 years later to this day. Her wise, brave, and unwavered decision on September 6th 1955 was to let the world see what was done to her son. And it's that mentality that Diamond Reynolds had when Philano Castile was dying right in front of her. Live streamed this so that no one can look away. And that live stream was an open casket for the world to see. That's why we record videos. It's why we chant names. Because the world needs to see, acknowledge, and talk about this. Now, I know hearing that list of names can be overwhelming, but there's still so much you can do. Educate yourself through literature and documentaries. There are many books you can read on this subject, but one I would recommend is Tears We Cannot Stop, A Sermon to White America by Michael Eric Dyson. The documentary 13th, directed by Ava DuVernay, is an excellent place to start. Please sign petitions. I signed the petitions for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor at change.org. They'll send you follow-up emails as far as updates on cases, other petitions you can sign, lawmakers you can call, and other actions you can take. Visit BlackLivesMatter.com to learn more about this mission, to donate, and to sign up for updates. Post on social media consistently. Volunteer, protest, vote. This is a long-term plan. But don't let that discourage you from doing just one of those things today, because that's what moves us in the direction we need to be going in, in order to achieve racial justice and equality in this country. Being an ally is not easy. It's not convenient. It's more than just a few social media posts, because this isn't just a trending cause. It's our livelihood. It takes listening, validating, learning, understanding. Vigilance. Lifting voices. Educating those around you who are spreading the misinformation that feeds into the systemic racism that keeps telling Black people that their lives don't matter. If you hear someone say they don't want to talk about politics when you bring up these issues, be an ally who says this isn't a political issue, it's a human rights issue. Be an ally with intention. Be an ally with hope. Be an ally who understands that This moment is only one step in the path of many, but I will say the fight has felt a lot less lonely because of all of you who have joined us. And for that, thank you.